Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll look at verses 1 to 10 this morning. It's been three weeks since we were in the Gospel of Luke together. I'm sure you've thought about other things since then, as I have. But though it's been three weeks, and though a lot of other things have filled our minds, and though there's a chapter division between our last text and what we look at this morning, the subject at hand has not really changed. The issue before us, last time and this, is the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Last time we learned, if Jesus is Lord, you must do what he says. Today we learn, if Jesus is Lord, you can trust him to do what he says. Here we have a lesson in faith what it means to trust the one we call Lord. Well, let me read the text. Luke 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This text is one of only two places in the New Testament where Jesus marvels at someone's great faith. The other is in Matthew 15, the faith of a Syrophoenician woman. But since, according to the whole Bible, we are saved by faith, we need to pay attention to this. For here we see what faith looks like, that faith which Jesus considers authentic. So as we think about what constitutes genuine faith, I want to point out just two simple things from this simple uh, text. The first is this. Faith admits, I'm not worthy. Faith admits, I'm not worthy. Proverbs 22 tells us a good name is more desirable than great riches. And certainly that's true. It's shameful to be known in your community as a scoundrel. All the Sunday morning religion in the world is meaningless if on Monday everyone knows you are not to be trusted. You're a scoundrel, a thief. But that was not the problem for this Roman centurion mentioned in our text. Everyone thought well of him, and well, they should have. Now, a centurion is literally a commander of 100 troops, though the actual number might have been 60 or 80. Centurions, Roman centurions, with their detachment of troops, were everywhere and occupied Israel. And because they represented and enforced the authority of the Roman Empire, they were generally despised among the Jews. But this commander was different. 
Think of all the things which come into this man. Though the Jews normally hated the Roman occupying forces, they had nothing good, but good to say about him. Unlike others, he cared for the Jewish people over whom he had authority. In fact, he cared enough to use his personal funds to build them a new synagogue in Capernaum. Obviously, he saw some merit in their worship of the Lord God, though he was himself a Gentile. But not only did he care about the Jews, which could have been just good politics, this wealthy and powerful man cared about one of his common servants who was sick and about to die. A man of his wealth and power could easily get another servant, but he cared about this man as a human being, a servant who served him and deserved his attention. So the centurion sent some of his Jewish friends, some of the elders of the people, to find Jesus and ask him to heal his servant. And they thought so highly of this centurion that when they spoke to Jesus, they did a little lobbying on behalf of their friend. We read it in verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. This man was an exemplary leader, friend of Israel. It was easy for them to commend him to Jesus. And so Jesus went with them toward the centurion's house. But that's not what the centurion actually had in mind. As Jesus neared his home, the centurion sent another delegation of friends begging Jesus not to come. Oh, he still wanted his servant healed. He just didn't believe himself worthy to have Jesus come into his house. Listen to his message in verse 6 and 7. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I did not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Here we see what true faith looks like. Faith admits, I'm not worthy. Does this describe your faith? It's quite different from what passes for faith these days. This faith is not claiming a power of its own or, or making some demands on God. This faith does not presume to know God's will and then to hold his holy feet to the fire to get it done. This faith is not promoting, uh, self-promoting as if God owes us a payback. This faith simply admits, Lord, I'm not worthy. This is a faith which drove, which drove the publican to pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the Pharisee touted his great piety before the Lord. This is the faith of the great apostle Paul who wrote, For I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of Christ. In fact, even toward the end of his life and ministry, the great apostle Paul still wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Oh, I know this sounds as if this would be the opposite of true faith. For us to admit we don't deserve it would seem to close the door on God's favor. It's like pleading guilty and then wondering whether I'm going to get to go free. But in Psalm 51, in the midst of his terrible guilt, David came to understand that to the contrary. This is the only thing God accepts. He said, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's what this text is talking about. Faith that admits I'm not worthy. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. Otherwise, we would just give up in despair in our unworthiness. There's another great true trait of true faith taught here, which brings us to our second point. <clears throat> Secondly, faith <clears throat> rests on Jesus' word. Faith rests on Jesus' word. You know, we no longer have a military draft in this country to the delight of thousands of young men and women. But the absence of the draft means that fewer and fewer of us have any military experience. Which means that all those tough lessons one learns in the military are now largely unknown among civilians. One of those lessons has to do with living under authority, living in the chain of command. Oh, I know everyone has, an, has a boss, not just people in the military. But you see, your boss does not have the authority to send you into a battle where you might be killed. So in the civilian world, authority is often a matter of negotiation. If you don't like a new policy that your boss hands down, you can always object. Uh, you, you can sign a petition and, 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 and as a group protest the new directive. Or, or, or perhaps you can talk to your union representative and file a grievance. Or if all else fails, you just can quit your job. But in the military, it's different. Commands are just that, commands, orders to be obeyed. And you can't just quit. They call that desertion. They throw you in jail for that. It's yes, sir, or no, sir, or no excuse, sir. There's no quibbling. And the commander doesn't just give commands as if he's a king with arbitrary authority. He must also obey commands for every commander has someone who outranks him who is in command over him. So in the armed forces, when a commander gives an order, he doesn't run around answering everyone's questions and making sure everyone's okay with the new directive. In fact, he probably doesn't even show his face. For those under him understand the chain of command. They will execute his order as if it's their own. That's why they call it a chain of command. The unbending, automatic obedience to orders is as strong as the links in a chain. Every link holding firm from the top to the bottom. Now you may not like the military, you may not care a thing about the military, but if you don't understand that about military life, you cannot understand the centurion's faith. This man understood what authority he had as a centurion. He knew that when he gave an order, it was carried out immediately and completely by the soldiers under his command. He also understood what authority Jesus had. Apparently he had heard of Jesus' ministry, his healing, his teaching. And the centurion's faith was displayed as he simply requested Jesus to give the order to those forces under his divine command in order that the centurion's servant might be healed. Tom Wright put it this way, this faith isn't an abstract belief about God or the learning of dogmas, 
It is the simple, clear belief that when Jesus commands that something be done, it will be done. He regards Jesus like a military officer with authority over sickness and health. If Jesus says that someone is to get well, they will. It's as simple as that. Faith rests on the authority of Jesus' word. Well, when Jesus sees this kind of faith displayed by this centurion, this Roman, this Gentile, he's amazed. He takes note of the fact that, that he finds no such faith anywhere in Israel as he has found in this Roman centurion. And then sure enough, when the messengers return home, the centurion's servant has been healed. Interestingly, throughout this story, the centurion never even saw Jesus. Did you notice that? Like you and me, he simply believed on the one of whom he had heard. His faith rested on the authority of Jesus' word, not on his own experience or his own understanding, his, his own interaction with Jesus. His faith rested on the authority of Jesus' word. Now, folks, this kind of faith does not come easy to us. Just resting on words? Surely there must be more to it than that. Just resting on words? We can't hardly stand it, so we build elaborate religious systems in hopes of having something more tangible than just hanging on a word from God. Perhaps we reinstitute portions of the Jewish law. Certainly that will win God's favor. Maybe we severely limit what we do on Sunday and call it a Sabbath day. God will be pleased with that, won't he? Or we devise other Christian laws to prove our piety and impress the Lord. Perhaps uh, like our parents' generation, we refrain from drinking and smoking and, and dancing. God must be impressed with that. Or, or perhaps we all agree to wear out-of-style clothes like some, some sects do in, in, within the Christian community. Or perhaps we construct elaborate church, uh, 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 an elaborate church calendar with many special holy days. And we make rules about how many times we must be in church. Perhaps we even go into Christian work vocational Christian work to prove how devout we are, surely God will show his favor if he sees the sincerity of our piety. No. No. Faith simply rests on Jesus' word. There's a wonderfully humorous illustration of the lack of such faith back in 2 Kings chapter 5. There we read of another Gentile army commander named Naaman. In this case, the commander himself was the one who was sick. He had incurable leprosy. But a young servant girl of his, one who actually was taken as a captive from Israel to serve him, the young servant girl suggested he go and see God's prophet Elisha over in Israel. So off he went prepared to pay dearly for the prophet to heal him. Well, to make a long story short, he finally arrived at Elisha's house. And Elisha, the prophet, didn't even come out to speak to him. 
Elisha simply sent one of his servants to say, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be healed. Well, as you can imagine, Commander Naaman was insulted. This powerful man who had made such a long journey thought he didn't even come out to speak to me. I thought he would at least wave his hands over my leprosy and offer some special words of prayer to his God. If I wanted to go bathe in a river, I have nicer rivers back home than the Jordan. You see, a simple word from the Lord through his prophet didn't mean a thing to Naaman. He was looking for something more impressive, something more religious, something which he could do, something which he could buy. Well, Naaman was about to return home in a huff when his own servant finally called him to his senses. He said, Sir, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. So when he said, simply wash and be cleansed, why don't you take him at his word and do it? And so Naaman did. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. And God healed him of his leprosy. For it was true back then, as it was true for the Roman centurion, as it is true now for you and me, faith simply rests taking the Lord at his word. So what word has Jesus spoken to us? On what is our faith to rest? Well, we read it all over the New Testament. For example, in Romans 10, we read, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. In other words, Paul is saying, this is not some exotic, esoteric word that no one knows, some special, uh, a secret word. Oh, no, this is the word of the gospel that you've heard, that you know, that you, you, that's everywhere around. And he continues, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, faith simply rests, taking Jesus at his word, believing that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, and he saves sinners. Jesus, Jesus utters the same kind of word back in Matthew, Matthew 11, 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what this text is teaching us. Faith rests, taking Jesus at his word. We come and rest in him. The most well-known such word from the Lord is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Faith simply depends on God's promise. He means what he says. You see, the problem is not the absence of Christ's promises. The problem is the lack of faith that leaves us looking for some other solution.
But true saving faith simply rests on Jesus taking God at his word. It was true for the Roman centurion, and it's true for you too. Two simple but profound truths for us to take away from this passage. First, faith admits, I'm not worthy. And then, secondly, faith rests on Jesus' word. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, it's this kind of faith which God wants to see in us. Centuries ago, the Heidelberg Catechism raised the very pertinent question that we face this morning. Who are to come to the Lord's table? And listen to its answer. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. Wow, that's what we just learned from the centurion, isn't it? In other words, we come here with faith that admits I'm not worthy. Faith that is displeased with myself because of my sin and admits it and owns up to it. But then the catechism goes on. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nonetheless trust that their sins are pardoned, that their continued weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. In other words, we come here simply with faith that knowing our unworthiness nonetheless rests on the gospel promise, Christ's word to us in the gospel. Faith is as simple as that. I'm not worthy, but I trust Jesus' word. I cannot make myself clean, but when Jesus says his blood cleanses me from all sins, folks, I am clean then. I can rest on that. I can never make myself righteous enough. But when God declares that the righteousness of Jesus has been applied to me in the courts of heaven, folks, that I am righteous, I can rest on that. I can never earn eternal life. I'm not worthy. But when God says that I died and rose from the dead with Jesus, I'm alive forever. Oh, and this morning we're not worthy to sit at the table with the Lord. But folks, when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you, we take him at his word, we rest in his promise, we come and he welcomes us at his table. Amen.